Good morning. In today's headlines, a, su a successful manhunt in Georgia. A shooting at a medical center yesterday left one woman dead and four wounded. Find out how the suspect was captured. HackQuest shares dropped by over 50% in after-hours trading. Will it be the next U.S. bank to fail? We look at that and yesterday's rate hike from the Fed. Title 42 ends next week. Migrants are lining up at Mexico's southern border to make the journey to the U.S. What happens when the restrictions is lifted? We bring on a border security expert to get his take. Inclusivity, but not including dissidents. A university student government stopped a cultural revolution survivor from speaking on campus. We'll find out why. And if you build it, they will come. Find out how an old fridge sparked a national automotive craze and blossomed into an Arizona museum. Good morning and welcome to NTD. I'm Tiffany Meyer and for Kevin Hogan. And I'm Evelyn Lee. Good morning. Today is Thursday, May the 4th. Be with you. <laughs> That's exactly the day it is. Shout out no, to the Star, Star Wars. Wars. <laughs> yes, exactly. I haven't actually watched it. Shame on me. But we have a star story in the end. Stay tuned for that. But we have a lot to get through. Oh, gosh. Yes. But first, uh, the suspect of a shooting in Atlanta, Georgia, has been caught. He's accused of killing one woman and wounding four others. The shooting was at a medical center in Midtown yesterday. The suspected shooter is 24-year-old Dion Patterson. Police say he went to the medical building with his mother just before noon. He was there for an appointment. The former Coast Guardsman was allegedly unhappy with the care he was receiving from the Department of Veterans Affairs. He was seeking new treatment. After the shooting, he ran to a nearby gas station where he stole an unattended pickup truck that was left running. It took about eight hours for police to find him. A 911 call led police to a gated condo complex in Cobb County. Here's what officials had to say about the manhunt. I believe, if I have my facts correct, that an undercover officer was the one that originally saw and confronted this individual and was able to then have backup from uniform officers that came in and took him into custody without, um, without incident. Thanks to the highly trained police officers, across our region, we are able to bring this suspect into custody without further harm. He will be charged and stand trial for his crimes. The woman who was killed has been identified as 38-year-old Amy St. Pierre. She was a CDC employee. Three of the four injured in the shooting are in critical condition. All of them are women. Title 42 is set to end next Thursday. Migrants hoping to make it to the U.S. lined up at Mexico's southern border yesterday. They were applying for paperwork that will allow them to travel freely through Mexico. Meanwhile, the president of the National Border Patrol Union issued a stark warning. He says cartels will have complete control over the U.S.-Mexico border when Title 42 ends. And joining us now is former Chief of U.S. Border Patrol Rodney Scott. He's also a senior fellow for border security at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Good morning, Rodney. We just heard that the National, uh, National Border Patrol Union said that the Mexican cartel will have complete control after the end of Title 42. Now, would you agree with that? And what are the top challenges you see? So good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me on. 
Um, I, I do agree with the Border Patrol Union, but I would actually, I believe it's actually a little bit worse. They're currently dealing with about 8,000 encounters every single day. And for those that don't really understand what that means, Border Patrol has to actually put those people in vehicles, trans them to, transport them to a station, get fingerprints, get photographs. And those vehicles only hold about eight to 12 people. It depends on the type of vehicle. Just the sheer logistics today have completely wiped out Border Patrol resources. The cartels do this intentionally. So then when Border Patrol is overwhelmed with illegal aliens, they can bring the narcotics or the criminal aliens or anybody willing to pay more in in that second wave. This is just going to get even worse when Title 42 goes away. Wow. And uh, but in some regards, Congressman Henry Cuellar, for, for instance, told the Epoch Times that, you know, Article 8 will be a better alternative because people expelled under this article face <clears throat> more repercussions, whereas, you know, under Title 42, they were just able to come right back. Now, do they have a point with that as well? So on paper, he's he's 100% accurate. However, Title VIII is the is the baseline immigration authority that Customs and Border Protection, U.S. Border Patrol, has always relied upon. They could have been using this the full time. The only reason we're talking about Title 42 today is because the Biden administration tore down all the effective programs that were put in place, not just by the Trump administration but prior administrations, to secure our border. And they basically created a catch and release policy where the majority of people Border Patrol are catching or encountering today are released into the United States. That created this chaotic draw that you're seeing all the way throughout the entire hemisphere. If Until they fix that, this is going to continue. And Title 42 was literally like the last uh, you know, finger in the dike, if you will, um, even though it was a health regulation that was helping slow down the flow. Uh, once that goes away, uh, it's like removing the dam completely. Right. And, you know, talking about fixing things, um, there sounds like there's a long way to go. <clears throat> Excuse me. But now with a suspect also who just went on a killing spree in Texas, who was reportedly deported at least four times. What do you think can be done? Can anything be done to make sure those types of crim criminals are caught before they actually come into our country? Yes, a lot can be done. The, the last administration gets a lot of credit for border security, but my career spanned almost 30 years. And over my entire career, we were systematically improving border security to just simply make sure we know who and what enters our home. We could force people to come through the front door, the ports of entry, and then vet them. Unfortunately, this administration walked away from 30 years of progress, not just what the last administration did. They could turn programs back on immediately, like remain in Mexico. They could turn the border wall system construction back on immediately. And that would make every agent in the field more effective. They also need to improve or reinstate, though, ICE's detention capacity so that they can actually go out and arrest fugitives like this. And I would like to point out, too, it was Border Patrol's tactical unit that actually arrested that individual um, and praise to them to get that guy off the streets. That's good to mention. So thank you so much for your analysis this morning. Rodney Scott. Thank you, Evelyn. Another U.S. bank is in trouble. Shares of PacWest were cut in half in after-hours trading yesterday. That came after news of company executives considering a potential sale. NDD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the latest bank looking for rescue. PacWest shares fell more than 55% in after-hours trading Wednesday. Bloomberg, citing anonymous sources, reported that the regional bank has been contemplating a sale among other strategic alternatives. The Beverly Hills-based bank has been weakened by the recent failure of three California-based lenders. 
Shares of PacWest already took a hit in March when SVB failed. Its stock plunged 76% for more than $26 at the beginning of March to around $6.40 on Wednesday. The news comes just hours after the Federal Reserve said that the worst of the banking turmoil was over. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell says the conditions in the banking sector have broadly improved since early March. The U.S. banking system is sound and resilient. President Biden made a similar statement earlier this week after federal regulators facilitated the sale of First Republic Bank. The banking system is safe and sound. Biden said all First Republic insured and uninsured depositors would be protected, shareholders would lose their investments, and taxpayers would not be on the hook. PacWest was the nation's 53rd largest commercial bank at the end of last year, with $41 billion in total assets. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. PacWest confirmed yesterday it is looking at strategic options. It says it hasn't experienced any unusual deposit outflows since the failure of First Republic. Shares of Western Alliance Bank also took a hit yesterday. Its stock dropped by 23%. Now, if PacWest fails, it would make it the fourth U.S. bank to fold this year. A Gallup poll released today says nearly half of American adults are concerned about the safety of the money they keep in banks. And now to the Fed. The Federal Reserve taking new action against high inflation by raising its key interest rates by a quarter point yesterday. The rate is now the highest it's been in 16 years. Jeremy Sandberg brings us more. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell announced an interest rate hike of a quarter percentage point on Wednesday. The benchmark federal funds rate is now at a range of 5% to 5.25%, the highest since 2007. We remain committed to bringing inflation back down to our 2% goal and to keep our longer-term inflation expectations well anchored. In a statement after its latest policy meeting, the Fed removed a previous sentence that said, the committee anticipates that some additional policy firming may be appropriate. Sam Burns, chief strategist at Mill Street Research, gave this analysis. They're probably done tightening for now, and they want to uh, be able to you know, make choices based on the data going forward and not be pre-committed to any further rate hikes. So how does the rate hike affect consumers? Certainly the first impact is going to be on, on housing and the price of mortgages, and then second on uh, autos, the, the cost of, of getting auto loans. Those are the two biggest things that consumers typically finance and are having to pay higher interest rates for now. Um, after that, uh, it's really uh, you know this, the knock-on effects from, for instance, higher credit card interest rates, uh, which have gone up significantly. Home sales have plunged as a result of the rate hikes over the last year, with mortgage rates doubling in the last 14 months. The hikes have also increased the risk of a recession. Many say the ongoing fragility in the banking sector was triggered in part by the Fed raising interest rates. The latest move could put an even bigger strain on Americans who are feeling the pinch. And on Capitol Hill, the Senate passed a bipartisan bill yesterday to hold the Chinese Communist Party accountable for solar panel parts, often made with forced labor. NDD's Melina Weiskup has the story on Capitol Hill. Melina? Hi, Tiff. Yeah, so Democrats are split on this issue, but some are not shy in expressing their opposition to the White House. And we saw that with yesterday's vote, with a good handful of Democrats joining with the GOP on this vote. We'll get into the Democrats' response a bit later, but first I want to show you what Senator Rick Scott told me about why he prioritized pushing a vote on this. Watch. These tariffs were created back in 2012 as a result of Chinese solar panel companies using slave labor, uh, selling them in this country. 
They were they were dumping them on, on 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 this economy to kill our jobs. On top of that, they were subsidized by the Chinese government. Now we found is these same companies were sending uh, to get away from the tariffs. They're sending them down to Southeast Asia and shipping them here. The Biden Commerce Department caught them. Right? And then Biden says, oh, no, don't worry about that slave labor. Don't worry about them violating our laws. We're going to give them a two-year reprieve. That's wrong. Now, like I mentioned earlier, there are some Democrats who are aligning themselves with Senator Scott's position here because they say that waiving these tariffs undermines our human rights standards, but it also forces American solar panel manufacturers to compete with cheap slave labor from China. Now, other Democrats argue that American manufacturers would be burdened if these tariffs were reimposed. However, one Democrat senator, Sherrod Brown, shared on the Senate floor ahead of yesterday's vote that he feels the exact opposite way. We'll show you what Senator Brown said, as well as an exchange I had with Senate Leader Chuck Schumer yesterday on this very issue. In the end, it's a simple choice. Whose side are you on? Are you the side of the Chinese Communist Party or the side of American workers? And that, to me, what is what this vote is about today. Do you think it was a mistake for Biden to waive those no, tariffs? No, the two years. Look, either way, whether there's a two-year extension or not, the chip, chip manufacturing and battery manufacturing is flocking to the United States. So as you just saw, Senate Leader Chuck Schumer kind of pivoted and avoided directly answering my question. And one reason why Democrats may be hesitant to speak out about this is because it does directly counter the White House's rule here. Now, the House has already passed a similar resolution overturning Biden's rule. So President Biden says he will veto this, in which case Congress will need to take action again and more Democrats would need to jump ship in order to officially override the president's veto. Tiff, back to you. Melina, thank you. And coming up, better pay, job security, and the fight against AI. The Writers Guild strike continued for a second day yesterday. Inclusivity, but not including dissidents. A university student government stopped a cultural revolution survivor from speaking on campus. We'll find out why. Welcome back. The Hollywood writer's strike continued for a second day yesterday as late night shows went dark. And today's Daniel Monaghan has more on what strikers on the ground are saying. Writers Guild members were picketing to preserve pay and job security on Wednesday. The strike has forced late night shows into hiatus and put other productions on pause. The union is seeking higher minimum pay and more writers per show, along with other demands. Brooklyn-based playwright C.A. Johnson says that writers are grappling with a gig economy, and they're being forced to juggle multiple jobs to make ends meet. It used to be financially secure to be a writer, and that's no longer true. And they're trying to make sure that that remains untrue. The last strike from the same union in 2007 and 2008 took three months to resolve. Besides pay and job security, another big issue for writers is AI replacing human beings. Writers Guild President Michael Winship says that while AI can be a useful tool, a line has been crossed. Too many people are using it against us and using it to create mediocrity. They're also in violation of copyright. They're also plagiarizing other people's stuff. It's, it's a problem. For actress Cynthia Nixon, AI is a poor substitute for written works created by people. I think we don't really believe that a robot can, uh, can 
can write something that will be as compelling as what a human being could write in the same way. There are currently no planned talks between the Writers Guild and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. How long writers will have to go without pay, or how many major productions will be delayed, shortened, or scrapped is unknown. But Saturday Night Live writer Alex English believes the strike is having a positive effect. It means that we're being heard loud and clear. And I think the, the more we do this, the longer, as many days as we can, the sooner that they'll be, that they'll listen. The strike's impact on scripted series and films may take some time to notice, but some shows, including Showtime's Yellow Jackets, have already paused production on forthcoming seasons. Over in California, picket lines formed at companies including Amazon, Disney, Sony, and Warner Brothers Discovery. Some non-union members stopped by to show their support. Actor Rob Lowe turned up at Paramount, and Jay Leno made an appearance outside Disney, handing picketers boxes of donuts. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And now we look at a story of a Chinese exile who's facing backlash at a U.S. college campus, more specifically a Christian university, the reason for addressing the dangers of communism. NTD's Sam Wong has the story. I'm going to tell you my experience and hopefully in the process help you to really appreciate what a great country that we are in and how much it's in danger and it depends on us to save it. The women speaking at Xi Van Fleet, a Virginia mom who lived through the Cultural Revolution firsthand in China. She's now setting foot on college campuses, warning American youth about the looming danger of communism on U.S. soil. At an event at the University of Delaware, Van Fleet shed some light on her personal experiences in communist China, while drawing comparisons with the U.S. She was previously denied the opportunity to speak at a Christian university in Washington state. I was invited by the Turning Point uh, chapter in Whitworth, a Christian university, and the student government voted no because I hold harmful views. And this is today's America. Van Fleet is also known for her pushback against critical race theory, an ideology that views race as a social construct. She says that CRT is a means of indoctrination, which brings back memories of what she saw back in Mao's China. Like many others during the Cultural Revolution, Van Fleet missed two years of school. Instead of going to college, she was sent to the countryside to work with peasants in the field. The Cultural Revolution was a political movement launched by former Chinese leader Mao Zedong in 1966. Its end goal was to completely eradicate traces of traditionalism and capitalism in China, all in an effort to consolidate Mao's leadership. To reject tradition, it mobilized young people who called themselves the Red Guards, who began to destroy historic relic en masse. They also publicly humiliated, tortured, and even killed those who were labeled as counter-revolutionaries. That was the Red Guards. You heard about that by now, right? Red Guards. And they're here today. They're here on campuses. They're here everywhere in America. Some students found the event meaningful. I found it honestly extremely sad to see just how how far China had to fall in terms of the social structure. And it was just so sad to see that this thing is happening right now at the U.S. And it's a lot closer than I realized it ever would be. Van Fleet also emphasized that the goal of communism is to turn people against one another. Despite external pressures, Van Fleet told NTD that she will continue her advocacy. Sam Wong, NTD News, New York.
Whitworth University released a statement to KXLY News in Spokane. It said the university is committed to freedom of speech, but allows students to make decisions and take responsibility for those decisions. The university did not give a reason for the declined invitation to Shivan Fleet, but said the student club can appeal the decision made by the student government assembly. And now let's move away from politics for a moment because this is something that you should see. For the first time, scientists have caught a star in the act of swallowing a planet. And it's not just a nibble or bite, it's one big gulp. Astronomers reported observations of what appears to be a gas giant about the size of Jupiter or bigger being eaten by its star. The sun-like star had been puffing up with old age for for eons and finally got so big that it engulfed the close orbiting planet. It's a preview of what will happen to Earth when our sun morphs into a red giant. The good news is it won't happen for about five billion years. Gosh, well that's good to know. I don't actually know what I watched. The moment it swallowed the planet was when it expanded? I think so. Gosh, okay. <laughs> I mean it looks kind of terrifying but also kind of interesting. It does, yeah. I agree with that, and we're going into the break now. Coming up, a man dreams of owning a race car with junkyard scraps. He sparks a national craze. Welcome back. For Isaac Newton, it was an apple falling from a tree and Albert Einstein, Burns famous clock tower, while traveling home from work. History has many examples of sudden inspiration. Now you should really see how an old fridge spawned an automotive innovation and a national sensation. Master tinkerer Ernie Adams always wanted a race car, but money was tight and living in a small Nebraska trailer park, space was limited too. But one day, as Ernie gazed off into the distance, a light bulb went off. It all started from seeing a refrigerator laying in the weeds that had a tire swing by it. But Ernie didn't just see a broken old appliance. In his mind, he saw a miniature race car. And in 1965, he turned that old icebox into the first of a new breed of dwarf cars. Ernie didn't have many tools at first, and his skills were undeveloped. I had uh, just bought an arc welder, and I had a homemade hacksaw to cut the metal with. He had to make many of the tools he worked with by hand, but time and the foundation he built as a youngster tinkering in a junkyard soon bore fruit, and that first dwarf car became a fleet, sparking a dwarf race car craze which spread nationwide. According to Ernie, experience was a great teacher. Oh yes, each, each car taught me some more. I'm building a 41 Chevy right now. And he soon became handy at making scaled down versions of larger cars, imitating them to a T. I had to make the spoke wheels. Everything has to be made. I had to make the horns so they look original. I make all the dash and the gauges so they look original. Most people prefer a nice shiny looking new car, but Ernie is not like most. His favorite is a rusty, unpainted 34 Ford sedan, but he may have a practical reason for that. Because I don't have to wash it and polish it, it looks good just how it's weathered. Ernie is an artist who couldn't bear to part with any of his masterpieces. Making money from his passion never entered into the equation. 
No, I, I don't sell any of them. Many, many people want to buy them. Word of Ernie's magic soon spread, and his showroom was transformed into the Dwarf Car Museum to accommodate all the visitors. This is a museum, and it's uh, lots of people come in here, 100 a day. Oh, it has uh, 15 different cars in here. A uh, couple of them are race cars. I'm the creator of the Dwarf Race Car, along with the street legal cars. The museum also has some antiques and is open every day to the public from nine till four. Ernie now feels like he has completed his cycle of creativity. I get a 41 Chevy that I'm working on now. When that's done, that'll be the last one I build because I'm getting too old. But the world can rest assured that the tradition of dwarf cars will continue onwards. Ernie is passing on his knowledge and passion to a friend who can carry the dwarf car torch into the future. So wait a minute, he saw a fridge and saw a car. <laughs> That's a level of creativity I want to reach. Indeed, and look at all those cars. It looks like they really have personality. It's like that movie Cars. <laughs> yeah, who knows what happens, you know, at night. <laughs> when they come to life, yeah. <laughs> all these movie references today. All right, and he made his own tools. That's insane. That's awesome. All right, we're gonna wrap it up here. Uh, we'd love to hear from you as usual. Write us at goodmorning@ntd.com. Shoot us an email. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee, and I'm Tiffany Meyer.